had the privilege of going with my mom this afternoon to see dear sister Sue Straza and to see the light that God spoke to us Sunday shining so clearly, so brightly, so beautifully from her faith, from her walk with God. And my mom and I were talking afterwards and a topic came up that I had also discussed with my sister Amanda this week. But I told my mom that I remembered a time in my late adolescence when I had a revelation. And at the time, I knew about, I knew very well some people who had made a choice to turn their back on God. And they had launched out on the road of the transgressor, the, the way of the transgressor. And that path that they had chosen was attended by many complex, quote-unquote, arguments, disagreements, grievances, convolutions. And, of course, all of those God answered in due season. He put to, to lie, put to naught, brought to naught all the things that were lifted up as excuses and arguments against the knowledge of God. And yet I remember knowing these people very well, one in particular, and I remember getting this revelation that, you know, all this is, all the doctrinal disputes and all the arguments and all it really is, is just plain old rotten selfishness. That is why this individual chose the way of the transgressor at every single juncture. It was just plain old rotten selfishness. It wasn't a lack of knowledge. It wasn't a lack of experience. It wasn't being honestly deceived. <laughs> Quote, unquote. <laughs> it was just plain old rotten selfishness. It was that when he was tempted, like everybody else was tempted, the thing that holds other people back didn't hold him back. And that thing that I'm talking about is just love, just a desire to not hurt other people, to love other people. Amen. And I, I've said about my own life, my own conversion, that that's really what it all pivoted on. I believe that when I was turned to God, that when I gave my life to God, I believe that my understanding of the truths of God, the doctrine, I believe it was inadequate. It was insufficient to turn me. I believe that my strength, my strength of character was insufficient to hold me. I believe that my faith and my trust and how my future would, uh, was, would, would unfold. That faith was insufficient. It was too weak to sustain me. But there was one thing. The choice became very simply, can I be selfish or not? 
That was it. Am I going to allow myself the path of selfishness that I know experientially is going to bring harm to others? Am I, can I do that? Can I live with myself knowing that I've done that? And I said, no, I couldn't. Of course, countless failures later, I'm still trying to say that. So my mom and I were talking, and we started talking about what it is that allows someone to indulge that selfishness. And I think what it is, at its core, is that we forget what manner of man we are. I think it's that simple. We just forget that we are a rank, rotten, ruined sinner. And that we do have rights. We do have desserts. We deserve something. But we deserve hell. We deserve isolation from all of love and life, God and goodness. We deserve hell. And if that remains the backdrop of all of our quandaries, trials, temptations in life, then we are going to be an overcomer. We are going to live with joy through whatever circumstance comes our way because the backdrop of that circumstance is hell. Hell. Eternal judgment Isolation from love and life and God. And you know what? No matter how hard the circumstance is, when put in front of the backdrop of hell, it just seems a whole lot better. It's a whole lot more livable, endurable. But when people start becoming unhappy is when they start deluding themselves that life should be something other than it is. I read a study recently that was in the psychological, um, was, was published in a psychological journal. It was a non-Christian study, has no Christian backing or influence whatsoever. And there is a summary of this study, and it is only one and a half pages long. Can I read it to you? Title, sense of entitlement may lead to vicious cycle of distress. A new study suggests a belief in entitlement can lead to dire psychological and social costs. Case Western, uh, Case Western Reserve University researchers discovered entitlement defined as personality trait driven by exaggerated feelings of deservedness and superiority may lead to chronic disappointment, unmet expectations, and a habitual self-reinforcing cycle of behavior. Self-reinforcing, they mean self-justifying. In the face of all other input, you keep reinforcing yourself. 
In a new theoretical model, investigators mapped how entitled personality traits may lead to perpetual to a perpetual loop of distress. I hope you get the paradox in this right off the bat. That people who think they're special are the most unhappy people in the world. Is that not a paradox? Or is it predictable? Is it the predictable deception of the devil? This is not a Christian paper. has no Christian association. This is a scientific study. The findings appear in the Psychological Bulletin. At extreme levels, quote, at extreme levels, entitlement is a toxic, narcissistic trait, repeatedly exposing people to the risk of feeling frustrated, unhappy, and disappointed with life, said Joshua Grubbs, the primary author of the paper and recent Ph.D. graduate from Case Western Reserve University. Quote, oftentimes, life, health, aging, and social, and the social world don't treat us as well as we'd like. Confronting these limitations is especially threatening to entitled persons because it violates their worldview of self-superiority, said Grubbs. Reacting to perceived injustices, entitled people may direct their anger outward, blaming others while reassuring themselves of their own specialness, quote-unquote. Thus does the, be- the cycle begin. The study, based on a review of more than 170 academic papers, outlines the cycle as a three-stage process. One, entitlement creates a constant vulnerability to unmet expectations. I deserve it, therefore I'm going to be hurt when I don't get it. That's what they mean. Two, unmet expectations lead to dissatisfaction and other volatile emotions. Remember when the recent president was elected in 2008, people were shrieking with joy that they were not going to have to pay their gas bill their cell phone bill, or their mortgage. They were enthusiastic about what? Their specialness and their sense of entitlement that had been fed by a a deceiving, misleading culture. Three, emotional distress demands a remedy. We would suggest repentance right here. But this demand for a remedy leads to reinforcement of superiority or the abuse of drugs and so on and so forth. Isn't that amazing that these scientists say that the demand for a remedy of your emotional distress, that the result, quote-unquote, leads to the reinforcement of superiority. When you're in distress and you're in an emotional meltdown, they say that the entitled people, that their response is to reinforce their sense of superiority. Reassurance stemming from entitlement can provide temporary relief 
from the very distress caused by entitlement, said Julie Xline, co-author of the study. Reinforcement can provide temporary relief, operative word, but these benefits are short-lived. Long-term consequences associated with entitled behavior include poor relationships, interpersonal conflicts. I think that means obnoxious. And depression. Depression is a clinical reality in the United States. Helen mentioned it on, on Sunday, but they estimate that by 2020, the leading cause of death in individuals under the age of 30 will be suicide. It is the fastest growing cause of death in America. Every 47 seconds, another person takes their life. How many have killed themselves since we started this meeting? And what is the cause for suicide? What is the impetus behind suicide? Depression. And what are these scientists saying is the impetus and cause behind depression? Delusion. Entitlement. A sense of deserving something. So what I'm suggesting is that it's one of the most dangerous pathogens floating in the air today. It is a pathological disease. It's called the disease of conceit. Many believe entitlement is on the rise in America. Well, how about that? You know, I think I might concur. As studies showed that so-called millennials, those born between 88 and 2004, just barely missed that one, see themselves as generally more entitled than previous generations. Entitled traits have an especially fertile breeding ground in the strong current of individualism. This is all them. I'm not commenting yet, except when I turn away. Individualism valued by American society and culture. Though pinning blame for the phenomenon is difficult. Yes, because what you're missing is that it all starts with something more basic than individualism. It's called the Adamic nature. And while there is no clear path for a person to break out of the cycle of entitled behavior, previous research shows, you ready for this? That traits of, this is a secular scientific study. And their concluding statement, the last thing I'm going to read to you, this is the paragraph, there is no clear path for a person to break out of the cycle of entitled behavior. The cycle that results in depression, failed relationships, and a sense of distress throughout their life. No clear path. While there is no clear path for a person to break out of the cycle of entitled behavior, previous research shows that traits of humility and gratitude can protect against the distress associated with entitlement. How many of you remember the Word of God where he is, Paul is cataloging the traits 
that bring about the collapse of not only a culture or a society, but the end of the world. And he's describing people who are lovers of money, liars, lovers of self other than lovers of God. And right in the midst of this awful litany of human debauchery, he has this phrase, they are unthankful. Past research seems to indicate that developing an attitude of humility and gratitude can protect against the distress associated with entitlement. Humility results in happiness. Entitlement results in distress. I told my mom, if there's one thing I want to put in my children, it is the sense that they have to serve people, that they owe it to God to serve people, not for the person's worthiness, but because it is an honor and a sacrifice to God and His worthiness. Paul, the man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, the man who defined Christian doctrine for us, was able to say late in his ministry, toward the end of his life, I know that in my flesh nothing good dwells. Paul was able to say, I who am least deserving of all the apostles. Amen. Paul was able to say, I fear lest I who have preached to others should myself become disqualified. It is a dangerous, deadly, joy-killing, soul-crushing demon, spiritual pathogen, to allow yourself to start living with this backdrop of deservedness. Deservedness will give you false expectations. Instead of telling you that life requires sacrifice and service, this attitude of entitlement sets you up to be dismayed by the things about which you should be inspired. Sister Sue Straza is lying in that bed tonight facing the end of her strength and her flesh and her life on this earth. And yet with a clear, unqualified bearing of faith, she's able to tell us of nights and a particular night when she was driving back from her visit up here over the weekend during all those years when she faithfully came to Fridays and Sundays she's driving back and pleading with God please do something to change my family so that her circumstance would change and as she sits in the driveway 
in her house in Austin, she hears the Lord say to her on two separate occasions, what if I decide to change them through you? And with joy, radiant joy, she lays there and tells us, God has done more in my life since I've become horizontal than ever when I was vertical. And she's able to give glory and praise and joy to the Lord that He is doing subtle and gentle things in the lives of her family through her suffering. Young people, you can make a choice about yourselves that is going to decide your joy and happiness at the very last moment of your life. And that choice is going to be a question of whether of what you deserve. If you're too good to deserve the blessings of this life, then you're going to live an unhappy life. But if you know you deserve the horrors of hell itself, then you're going to walk through this tough world so happy, so grateful, so unworthy to be able to live this tough life. She has joy. She has gratitude. While her body is eaten up with cancer, her strength is waning away. The inner strength that is greater than the strength of the muscle, remember, that inner strength is still there. It's there more than it's ever been. So that she can say honestly, like we all hope to one day say, even though outwardly I'm fading away, inwardly I'm being renewed day by day. Entitlement prepares you to be unhappy. Entitlement does not allow you to receive correction. Let's rephrase that. Entitlement does not allow you to undergo improvement. You know, improvement is a synonym for correction. To make something correct, to make it right, is not a bad thing. Who would like to be better? Who would like to get corrected? Well, we just said the same thing. Correct, better, it's the same thing. But entitlement disallows receptivity toward improvement. Because you don't need to attain to anything. Unlike Paul, you can say, I'm proud that I've already attained. I've already been perfected. And all those hardships are behind me. Entitlement does not allow you to accept improvement. You're stuck. Because you already deserve more than you're getting. So when somebody comes along and starts pointing out that you're not as good as you thought you were, that you're not as special, as this paper put it, you get all bent out of shape. You can't receive correction. Because unlike the Apostle Peter, you can't take a subtle, gentle reminder, a nudge that, hey, guy, you deserve hell. Don't even lean in this direction 
of hypocrisy and spiritual pride, you better get back in the path of humility. No, you can't take that. You can't take a little gentle nudge. Amen. Because you live as a victim. You live as a special person deprived of the things you know you really deserve. Amen. But do you really deserve them? What allows you to believe that you're going to go to heaven instead of hell? That somebody paid a price, right? Did you redeem yourself? Were you bought with your own blood? If we tried to redeem ourselves, we would be like the, the blind calf, the lame sheep. We are a blemished sacrifice. We cannot make redemption for ourselves. We were redeemed with precious blood, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. As a spotless lamb, as an unblemished sacrifice. If I had redeemed myself, if I had paid the price at Calvary, then I would have a sense of entitlement, of accomplishment. I'm a good person. Don't challenge me. I redeemed myself. But if you're only squeaking into heaven because somebody else suffered in your place, then is heaven what you deserve? Or is heaven a free gift? As Paul said, is it wages earned? Is it wages earned? Or is it a free gift? There are conditions to that gift. I don't deny that. But those conditions don't equal the cost of Calvary. You've got to make an acceptable sacrifice. And what is an acceptable sacrifice? To be good, to never make a mistake? No, to bring all your failings, all your pride, all your repeat sins, all your pathetic weakness, to bring it to Jesus and say, it's an imperfect sacrifice, but the heart is willing and I pray the gift would be acceptable. Take me, Jesus, not for my perfection, but because I'm just trying to acknowledge that you're worthy, so take all my failures. And when he sees that, when he sees your inadequate, imperfect, failing, stumbling sacrifice. He says, that's enough. Just to strive. Just to join the ranks of those who don't lean back in complacency, but who seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Just to join the ranks of the seekers. Just to acknowledge that he's deserving of perfection, even if you can't give it. Just to join those ranks is enough for him to reckon it as faith and therefore to reckon his blood to your unworthy account. Your sacrifice doesn't save you, but it's necessary to, uni to unite you to the sacrifice that saves you. That's why he says we are united with him through death. If you're going around trying to prop up your old man, trying to put makeup on him, trying to make him look younger and better and smarter, more of an accomplished gentleman. Amen. You have no unite, you have no union with Christ's saving sacrifice. We are united with him through death. Don't ever forget that phrase, Romans 6. We are united with him through death. 
If you're not walking in death, you can't have any union with Christ's saving sacrifice. But if you wake up in the morning and say, God, I know I'm a failure. I've no, I know I've blown it more times than not, but I never joined the ranks of the saved because I was worthy. I joined because I was a leper. I joined because I was weak. I joined because I was incapable, but because I was determined to give everything this leper could give to the honor of the sacrifice that could cover and save me. Amen. So I glorify God with my body because I'm bought with a price. Because I'm not my own. Because I'm trying to tell Him, you didn't waste your blood on me. You didn't suffer in vain for me. I'm going to get up and I'm going to do my best to give you honor and glory. And the best I do, the only good I ever do is when that flesh is surrendered. That flesh is dying. And the Holy Spirit starts to anoint me. Amen. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Even this death I can't do unless the Holy Spirit starts to help me. The grace of God ministered through its various forms. James said we all stumble in many ways, so I, I never get this chip on my shoulder that I've been a Christian for this many years and now I'm justified by my righteousness. If I'm the best person anybody ever knew. If I'm the cleanest saint anybody's ever seen. With, when I die apart from the unmerited, imputed blood of Jesus, I'm still going to hell. His blood was imputed to Moses' account. His blood was imputed to Abraham's account. The meekest man on earth would have gone to hell had it not been for the cross, had it not been for the sacrifice that was going to be retroactively applied to their account. He stood there in the garden and he said, he's going he's to bite your heel, he's going to bruise your heel. But one day, born of a woman, born under the law, your seed is going to crush his head. Somebody's going to come who has no sin, nor is deceit found in his mouth, and he's going to show how to overcome. He's going to destroy the works of the evil one. I came to destroy the works of the evil one. It's going to happen. And I'm going to empower a body, a multitude, a new family, a new nation to walk in righteousness. But as he says in Isaiah, the last verse of 59, in that day, says the Lord, all their righteousness will be from me. So the best you do, the only good you do, is when you get out of the way and the Holy Spirit starts to work through you. But even that is not enough to get you into heaven. you got to be walking in broken, undeserving humility. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. I know what I deserve. And if you know what you deserve, then when someone comes along and starts telling you that you can change and be better, you're not dismayed. 
you don't puff up in a big pout and start hanging your bottom lip out. You're thankful. Amen. This is hard. No discipline is pleasant. But afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. There's nothing good in me. There's no righteousness going to come from this rotten flesh. So come, Lord, bring the sword. Change me. Fill me with more of your spirit. Peter said it, that we could not forget what manner of man we were. Paul said it, in view of God's mercy, make the sacrifice. can't make the sacrifice, can't do a good job, can't bring honor to God, that's somebody who has lost the backdrop of what they really deserve, amen, can't show the kindness, can't show the generosity, can't make the sacrifice. Can't put that flesh and all its whining excuses and defensiveness on the altar. Can't put the sword of the Spirit through that whining goat and become a sheep, a lamb of God. Can't make the sacrifice. You've lost sight of the backdrop. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, in view of God's mercies, make the sacrifice. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is just reasonable. It's not exceptional. It's not praiseworthy. It's just barely reasonable. Sister Sue can make the sacrifice, and she's doing it with a smile. She's doing it with victory. I know she's She's not infallible. I know she's had mistakes. I know she's gotten upset. I'm sure she has. But she's making the sacrifice. Why? Why? Because the day of reckoning is very near. She's in view of God's mercy. God's mercy, His ultimate mercy, is in view already. Amen. And if you live your life in view of that, you can make the sacrifice. You can shut that flesh up and do what has to be done. And do it as under the Lord. What I want is to be united with Him. That's what I want. It doesn't say, in my way there is fullness of joy. It doesn't say, in my wealth there is fullness of joy. It doesn't say in my health there is fullness of joy. It says there's wisdom in the house of mourning more than the house of mirth. But it does say in His presence there is fullness of joy. And at His right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So all I want to be, I want to be united with Him through death. I can face the sacrifice because the union is in the sacrifice. The union is in the sacrifice. In the sacrifice, I can feel His right hand upholding me. And I can feel joy and fulfillment in His presence. That's what we want. Do not fear, Isaiah 41. Do not fear, for I am with you. <laughs> 
That's what we want. We just want to be with Him. We just don't want to be off there by ourselves where doubts and fears assail. We just don't want to be isolated. We don't want to be left behind. We want to be in the secret place of the Most High under the shadow of the Almighty. We want to be in His presence. And that's what Sister Sue has. The aura. The glory of God. What does it say? The Spirit of glory shall rest upon them. The Spirit of glory is on Sister Sue. Yea, though I walk through the sacrifice. Yea, though I face the affliction. Yea, though I confront things happening not my way. I will not fear, for you are with me. We are united with him through death. What we fail to see is that outside of the valley of death, outside of the suffering, outside of the sacrifice, we're no longer with him. We have our pleasures of sin for a season, but we don't have the fellowship of Christ. We don't have the spirit of glory. We don't have what Sister Sue has. No matter what you face, if you can face it and just turn around and say, God, are you still there? Lord, do you have grace for this? And all of a sudden, a knock comes on the door and grace starts flowing to you. All of a sudden, a song rises up in your heart or the Lord speaks to you in a dream. That's the fulfillment of life. That's the fullness of joy. There are bits and pieces of joy in the world and they're just enough to hook you. They're just bait on hooks that are going to ruin your life. Amen. But the real joy, the fullness of joy is in His presence. That's why He could say, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. I don't want the bits of joy. I don't want the pleasures of, season, of sin for a season. I want the pleasures at His right hand. Amen. Isaiah 41, do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are angered at you will be ashamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you but will not find them. There is going to come a day when the biggest battles in your life, you're going to try to remember what they were. What was it that had me so tied in knots? And you're going to be looking around and you're not going to be able to find it. That's what he's saying. You will seek for them and you will, those who quarrel with you and you will not find it. Someday, Sister Sue is going to be walking through the streets of the new city. And she's going to be saying, what was it that used to make me afraid? Can anybody find it? It won't be there. The Egyptians you see this day, you will see no more forever and ever. There are things that you think you're going to fight for the rest of your life and you may only fight them for another five minutes if you'll do it with God. 
the day is going to come when you're going to look around and say, now why did that have me so snowed? I don't feel intimidated by that at all. I'm looking for that day, are you? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Those who war against you, those who contend with you, will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek for those who quarrel with you, but you will not find them. You will look for those who war against you, but they will be as nothing. They will be non-existent. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there are things that seem monumental right now that someday could become non-existent? Not even on the horizon. Amen. If you're tempted to pray, God, please help me to find the faith to look at this battle that I'm in right now with that attitude. Do it. Pray it. God, in Jesus' name, help me to face this immovable mountain with the assurance that one day I'm going to look for it and it's going to be gone. One day I'm going to have victory. I know I'm going to get it. Jesus' name. You will seek for those who quarrel with you, and you will not find them. You will look for those who war with you, and they will be as nothing, non-existent. For I am Yahweh your God, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you. Do not fear, for I will help you. It's like the Lord gritted his teeth in the middle of that sentence. Do not fear. I'm going to help you. I'm with you. Don't fear, you worm. Don't fear. <laughs> Amen. I think he'd like, to become, like us to become something different than worms, but he is trying to help us. You can grow a spine. You can grow some faith. You can develop a vertebrae. Amen. A whole string of them, in fact. Amen. You can find rectitude and courage in the face of the worst opposition. The things that seem insurmountable, one day you're going to laugh at. You're going to say, where are they? Do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you. I'm going to help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer. He is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I have made you a new, sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them. Can you get this picture? This worm got a big axe. Amen? This worm got a threshing sledge. And someday he's going to stand upright. And the Bible says he's going to pulverize the mountains. <laughs> That's what God wants you to do. Is that how you're approaching your problem? Lord, give me my threshing sledge. Where is that mountain? Amen. I prayed over and over, moving into the sea, God, and it didn't happen. So give me my thresh threshing sledge. Let's go pulverize the mountains. Amen. Don't be afraid of that little spark of faith that wants to filter down in your heart and tell you that, yeah, that one, that mountain, God is going to help you pulverize it if you'll just believe him. Yep, that one, that mountain of fear, he's going to help you pulverize it. Amen. I will make 
the hills like chaff. Could anything be lighter? Could anything be more movable? Amen. When the breath of God, when the wind of the Spirit starts blowing on the rocks, they flutter like the chaff. Amen. You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them. He says it twice. You will winnow them and the wind will carry them away and the storm will scatter them. You will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. The very storm you're going through, if you'll just believe God, if you'll just keep your hand in His, if you'll just hang in there, if you'll just make the sacrifice, you'll be united. He'll be with you. And the very storm that you think is going to shake you is really just going to blow all the mountains and the hills like chaff. But don't make the mistake of mediating this word of promise through your carnal mind. Take the such if God's putting it in your hands. Take it and start swinging it in your heart and mind even as we speak. Just start, I believe you, God. I believe I can overcome it. I believe I can change. I believe this thing that I've been forever. Someday I'm going to look for it and I'm not going to be able to find it. I know it, God. I feel it, God. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I will not fear for thou art with me. I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba as your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. The other man in our place, you know who that was? Hmm? Amen. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather them from the west. I am with you. Who is he with? Who is united with him? We are united with Him through death. Not His death. We're united with His death through our death. We are united with Him through death. He's talking about repentance there. In the sacrifice, God is there. He's not. When you're all, when everything's going just right, He's there in the sacrifice. So if you shy away from the sacrifice, then you're backing away with union with God because the sacrifice is where His presence is. His rod and His staff are a comfort and you don't fear in the valley of the shadow of death for He is with you. So when is He with you? When are you united with Him? When you're dying. When you're making a sacrifice. When there's a little bit of dying going on inside of you. Maybe it's dying to the flesh. Maybe it's dying to your will. Maybe it's surrendering your plans, your health, your youth. But he is with you through the sacrifice. Your sacrifice doesn't save you, but it unites you to the sacrifice that saves you. He'll be with you if you'll make the sacrifice.
The fundamental building block that you need to keep in your mind is that you are united with him through your sacrifice. Your sacrifice doesn't save you. It unites you to the sacrifice that saves you. And what is the acceptable sacrifice? The willing heart. The completely willing heart. If you'd make a heap of all the things you deserve and make a burnt offering sacrifice of them, you would have more than you ever need or deserve. You would have God with you. You would have His presence with you. And that's all you need to make it. You just need Him there. You just need to feel God. So I'm saying, give up on all your desserts and take the fullness of joy that is in God's presence. Give up on the pleasures of sin for a season and take the pleasures at his, at his right hand. Give up on the good life and the safe life and step down into the valley of the shadow of death for he is going to be right there with you in that place. Change your mind. Change your thinking. Repentance starts with a different attitude, a change in your mind and your thinking. Change it tonight. Let the Word turn you. And the mountains of impossibility that you have come to resent, that you have learned to live in the shadow of, they're going to become like chaff someday if you'll just believe God, if you'll just know that what you need is to be in His presence. You don't need life to be good. You need God to be good. The Lord spoke to Isaac just after Abraham died and said, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. Be a pilgrim, and I'll be with you. And he said again, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. And again he said, Abimelech said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Amen. Therefore, let there be a covenant between us. To Jacob, he said, Behold, on that first night, when he was so scared and he was running, fleeing from his brother, he encountered God. Behold, the Lord said, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. How did they do it? How did they leave country? People, history, culture. He was with them. He was with them. They were in the presence of God. They felt the presence of God in their lives. He was with them. Jesus said in John 5, separated from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. The Lord said again to Jacob, the Jacob said to the Lord, If God will be with me and will keep me in this journey that I take and will give me food and eat to eat and garments to wear, then I shall go. That's all you need to say. God, if you're with me, God, if you're leading me, if your presence is still with me, I'm leaving right now. Amen. I'm ready. 
I'm going to go places I don't want to go. I'm going to go to boring places. I'm going to go to places that seem dormant. I'm going to go to fruitful places. I'm going to go to heights and I'm going to go to lows. But as Moses said, please don't send us unless your presence goes with us. These people knew that it wasn't the good life, it was the good God. The Lord said to to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and your relatives and I will be with you. You've got to become all about the presence of God or not at all. Is the presence of God with you? Amen. Did God lead you into that job? Is His presence on you in that job? You can do anything if God is with you. But apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. That's what Emmanuel is, amen? And it's not God with us wherever we go. It's God with us wherever he goes. The Lord was with Joseph. It says in Genesis 39, the Lord was with Joseph, so he became successful, a very successful man. And he was in the house of his master in Egypt. How'd you do it, Joseph? How'd you hang on through the betrayal of your brothers? How'd you hang on when you were taken out of your country and out of the dreams of your future? How'd you do it? You were all alone there in Potiphar's house. No, actually, I wasn't. You weren't alone? Who came with you? Was it Judah? Was it Benjamin? No. No, everywhere I went, there was the presence of God. And I just kept finding it in me to go and to go with the victory because he was still with me. Then he ends up in jail. First thing it says about him when he ends up in Potiphar's house is that the Lord was with him. Then everything starts falling apart. You know what happens. His wife accuses him. He gets accused of the very crime he didn't commit. If he had sinned, he could have had pleasures of sin for a season. But he didn't because he was afraid. Like David said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He wanted God's presence more than anything. So lo and behold, he gets accused, and he ends up in jail. What's the first thing it says about him when he ends up in jail? 39-21, but Yahweh was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor or grace in the sight of the chief jailer. Amen. Oh God, it's all falling apart. Everything's terrible. I've been falsely accused. What happened to my dreams? I thought they were from you. Now I'm in prison and clang, bang, the door's shut and here I am sitting there. Quiet, dark. What is this I'm feeling? I don't understand it. But I'm feeling the presence of God. Oh God. Okay. I get it now. Yea, though I walk the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil because thou art with me and you'll use this like a rod and a staff and you're going to change me through it I'm becoming the man who can receive the promise two verses later the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him (laughs) how many of you managers would be glad to stop checking up if you knew they were in the Spirit. (laughs) 
I think that we should print that on the walls of every business in huge block letters. He did not supervise anything Joseph did because he was in the Spirit, because the Lord was with him. You know that all this time, Jacob thought Joseph was dead. You know that. And you know that they were starving and everything was going to coincide just right. God had his timetables. God had the deliverance. It was all worked just right. And Joseph could have cracked. He could have given up. He could have just put on an attitude that sent the Spirit far from him. And he would have rotted in jail forever. And then he could have blamed God. I wonder how many people die in jail. I really do. I wonder how many salvations of whole peoples and nations cracked because they couldn't find the fullness of joy that was in God's presence. They couldn't make the sacrifice. And wasn't that what Joseph was making? He was making the sacrifice of a positive attitude in a horrible circumstance. He was making the, the, the sacrifice of good faith, of good cheer, in an, in an unfair, dishonest, falsely accusing circumstance. And you know, Jacob says that when they sent the, <clears throat> the brothers, the, the, the brothers came, the ten brothers came that first time to talk to Joseph. They didn't know it was Joseph. Joseph asked them for Benjamin. Joseph doesn't even know what he's asking for. He doesn't know the conflict he's going to throw his family into. And they, he says, well, leave Simeon here and, and then go talk to your father and come back. And So they leave Simeon there as a servant in, in Joseph's house. And Joseph doesn't know what he's asking for. I believe God told Joseph to ask for Benjamin. I believe God told Joseph to ask for Benjamin. And this is a man who's walked in the presence of God such that he doesn't have to understand everything. He doesn't have to explain, have everything explained to him. He just has to follow the leading of this presence that has been with him for so long. I believe if he hadn't asked for Benjamin, God could have never ripped Jacob free from Canaan. He could have never made the incredible reunion that he had in mind, the blessing of the 12 tribes that set the course for God's people. But you know when they go back to Jacob, Jacob is a man who has lived with defeat and setbacks his entire life. He's a twin, and yet he's counted as second. He's a twin, and yet he's counted as second. He finally thinks he gets his, his birthright, and he's chased out of the house and has to flee the country. He ends up in his uncle's house, falls in love, and he's told, you can't marry the girl until you've worked for me seven years. So for seven years, he works diligently, and he's thwarted again. You talk about a litany of defeats. This man, after whom the people of God are named, the Israel of God, it is one string of defeats after another. So then he gets the wrong woman. And he's told you have to work seven more years. So he works seven more years. And he's set back again. He's told you have to work seven more years. And he gets up and he flees the house of his father-in-law, this crook, 
who should himself have been named Jacob, conniver, manipulator. And he's off. He's finally found his own freedom. He's, God has prospered him. He's finally free of all these entanglements. And he gets word. Your old nemesis is expecting you about this time tomorrow. Can you do lunch? Something like that. I mean, seriously. You talk about one setback after another. And we complain at the silliest stuff. We're talking about decades of effort, of investment that just keep ending in one disappointment after another. But he wrestles that night with the angel. He says, I've got to get this blessing. I've tried this way and I've tried through work and I've tried through conniving and I've tried through long time and I've tried and I've tried and God, I've got to get this blessing. And the Lord does. He blesses him and he changes his name. And then that, that wife that he loved, the girl he didn't want to marry has 10 kids and the wife he, didn't, he did want to marry is barren. And she wails and is unhappy and he can do nothing to console her she blames God and she's just miserable. What a marriage. What a life. This is the promised land. This is the beginning of God's people on the face of the earth. This is when they became a people. Finally, she has a boy. And his brothers hate him. Joseph knows he's got a special calling. Jacob knows he's got a special calling. Joseph does too. Jacob knows he's got a special calling. He gives him the coat of many colors. He doesn't know how to respond to his dreams, but he, he doesn't dismiss them like his brothers do. And then one day, here they come. What is this, setback number 10? Here's the bloody coat of the one thing you love most in the world. once whispered in his ear while he lay on a rock at the gateway of heaven and said, I will be with you and I will not leave you until I bring you into all that I have promised you. It's going to happen in ways you don't expect. You're going to have to make sacrifice after sacrifice. Most of all, you're going to have to sacrifice your expectations. You're going to have to sacrifice the way you think it happens. So he finally adjusts to the fact that this boy is dead and wails him, mourns his passing. And his wife has a second child, and it's Benjamin. And his, the love of his life, Rachel, dies in childbirth. And he's at the very end of his life. Everything has been taken. Everything has been set back. Everything has happened in an in a, in a fashion that disappointed, that scared, that stole and robbed him. But he's got Benjamin. So he says, all ten of you go, but leave me with Benjamin. And the Lord holds out his hand and says, Jacob, I think there's one more thing you haven't given me. go back and they say, no, he, the man insisted. He said, you will, do not come back. I will not give you food unless you bring your youngest brother. 
He says, I can't do it. So they starve, and they get hungrier and hungrier, and they're about to, they're about to be wiped off of the face of the earth. Benjamin is going to die of starvation. Isn't it funny how God can corner you till you have no choice but to trust him? And finally, when he's starving, he's an ancient man. How old was he by this time? He's in his 80s. He goes, this old man goes out to the doorway of his tent. And he opens it up and says, my life. I have been a sojourner and a wanderer in the earth. And my years have been few and full of trouble. All these things are against me. Everything has gone wrong. The last thing I'm going to do on this earth is surrender my son to Egypt. I will not leave you until I bring you into the land and fulfill all the promises which I have made to you. He gives him up. He lets him go. And it tells about Joseph. <clears throat> then it says, They told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. And indeed, he is ruler over all of Egypt. But he was stunned. The word means he was caught in shock. What does it feel like when the things you thought were dead Start getting resurrected. What does it feel like when the dreams you gave up on decades ago start unfolding before your eyes? What does it feel like when you surrender the last thing you were holding on to only to get back both the thing you gave up last and the thing that's been dead decades? But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. The last thing he said was, All these things are against me. And now he says, It is enough. My son Joseph still lives. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba. And there he offered a sacrifice to the God of his father Isaac. Who is he with, people? When is he with you? In the sacrifice. And God spoke to Israel. In visions of the night, he said to him, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you. 
and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt. Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, all his descendants came with him to Egypt. And it goes down and it says, he, he gives his last commission to Joseph. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said to him, I know, my son, I know. He also will be a people, and he will also be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you, and he will bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from, took the, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said to them, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. And he gives the blessings. And then it says that he drew his feet into his bed, closed his eyes, and died. Amen. Not until he had launched the people of God that we're a part of today, the commonwealth of Israel. They're all against you so that you can put them in God's hands and let him bring them to pass. They're not against you so that it would end that way. And the last thing he says to Joseph is that God is going to be with you like he's been with me. What did Jesus say? Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What did the writer of Hebrews say? The one who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Hey. I believe God is calling for people to make a different level of sacrifice. I believe he's calling for boys to become men. I believe he's calling for whiners to become soldiers. I believe he's calling for the pathetic, pitiful, little self-centered, entitled babies to recognize and remember the backdrop against which their life is supposed to be lived and make a sacrifice. I believe he's offering you not to have a good life, as the world calls it, because it's, nobody's ever had it. I believe he's offering you not wealth as the world gives it, but I believe he's offering to be with you. I believe he's offering to stick with you, to never leave you or forsake you. And if you want that more than you want anything else, your life's going to stop being a mystery. Your failures are going to stop being a mystery because you're going to be willing to do anything to entertain and retain that presence in your life. The first generation knew that they had been called from the gates of hell. 
Amen. And they lived with gratitude. They lived with joy because they knew they'd been brought from the, the pits of hell. The second generation can delude themselves. They don't recognize the exceedingly sinfulness of sin. And that though they may not be as extensively, intensively evil as they could be, that they are extensively flawed and evil. And that you're just as much an eligible candidate for damnation as any other person who's ever been born. And then the only reason you can claim to be a Christian or saved is if you are truly one of those who have been humbled to receive God's grace, not by works of righteousness, which you have done, but you have surrendered yourself to become His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what He decides is best. Thank you, Jesus, that you're not your own, that you've been bought with a price, and that it's time to glorify God in your body. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, that it's time to give up all the complaining and murmuring. Do everything without complaining or murmuring that you may become blameless and pure children of God. It is through discipline that He makes you sons. So if you complain and murmur and reject the discipline, then the process of becoming His sons is aborted. But if you'll do everything without complaining and murmuring, you'll become blameless and pure children of God. And in this wicked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world.